you're one of those that believes he's great, would you say amen? amen. Hope you have your amens on today. You're going to need them. All right. Welcome if you're new here, really glad to have you here. Welcome if you're not new here, really glad to have you here. Uh, and especially if you're live streaming with us. I, I know of individuals who are watching this morning from Texas and Florida and Hawaii and Alaska. And really glad you're with us and we want you to follow along as well. So we're going to all turn to Romans chapter 4 and I'm going to invite you to follow along. Um, we're going to also ask you to put your finger in the book of Colossians. If you have a Bible with you this morning, pull it out, turn to Colossians and Romans. And if you don't have one with you, you're going to find them in the racks around you. So you can follow that way, or maybe you got it on your phone or your iPad. Feel free to pull it out and follow along electronically. I'm going to ask you to pray with me first, and then we're going to jump into the text. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you and recognize that what we are about to do is not only to declare your greatness, because you have the ability to speak into our life, but that you are so concerned about us that you had these things recorded so that we could read them to know more about your nature and your character. So Father, on behalf of every one of us here, every one of us watching, I pray right now that what you'll do is bring the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. Flood this place with your presence in such a way that we will see you and understand who you are and who we are in light of you. God, that we would understand better our relationship to you. Where you need to correct us, Father, I invite you to do that. And where you need to encourage us, God, please do that. We pray for all that. We ask for that in the name of the matchless King of Kings, the Lord Jesus Christ and all God's people said, amen. I just want to encourage you that if you shared in the prayer time just a little bit ago and maybe you didn't see your prayer come up on the screen, those prayers are, are being saved and we're sending them on to the prayer team so that they can participate and pray for you specifically. So don't feel like your prayer was lost, all right? With just a certain amount of time. We have before us a profound passage and, and I, I say that not lightly. So we're going to give three weeks to Romans chapter 4, verses 13 to the end of the chapter. And we're going to do four verses this morning. But this is so profound. The concepts that come out of these verses are intended by God to remind you of who you are in Jesus Christ. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, God wants you to understand you don't need to live mediocre lives. You don't need to live defeated lives. You can live extraordinarily if you understand God's promise of blessing upon you. And the reason I wanted to bring up Colossians chapter 2 is it kind of roots us in Romans chapter 4. It gives us a reminder of who we are. So I want you to look on the screen. Maybe if you have your Bibles open, you can look at it yourself. But in Colossians chapter 2 verse 9, this is what we're told. For in him, this is talking about Jesus, in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. We could spend weeks on that one sentence, right? I mean, we could just stop right here and go into that. But that's not what we're looking at. I'll go forward with me into verse 10. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in him, Jesus, you have been made complete. And he is the head over all rule and authority. What I'd like to focus on are seven words that are in the midst of that sentence that you just saw, and you'll see it pop up on the screen. Colossians 2, 10, in him you have been made complete. This word complete is really, really important for you to remember who you are in Jesus Christ. This word complete is one of the two Greek words I put in your notes this morning. And you'll see this first one come up on the screen so that you can understand. Look at your notes as well if you want to. But here's, here's how it applies. In the first century, in the fishing industry, which was a really, really big economic staple in the Middle East, 
the fishing industry had this term that was applied to them when they would go out and literally stuff their net so full they could not get one more fin inside the net. That's the same word that Paul has taken and translated over when he writes to the people at the church in Colossae. And he says to them, you have been made complete. In other words, you have been made perfect. You have been completed in Jesus Christ. With this same thought in mind, they're thinking of nets that are stuffed to the gills, literally with gills, and you can't get any more in there. And Paul is saying, you have been stuffed with perfection, not because of who you are, but because of what Jesus has done. So I want to ask you this question this morning. How many of you, just being really honest, how many of you feel spiritually perfect this morning? Yeah, right? Not, not, not many of us, right? Uh, and last night I had my hand up after the first service, and uh, Dr. Yu said to me, you, you realize you were the only person with your hand up in the auditorium, right? And I said, well, I just did it as an example, right? Because none of us feels spiritually perfect. We just don't. When we survey ourselves. I mean, if we measure ourselves physically perfect, I know guys who are bodybuilders, and they, they hit the gym a lot, way more than I do, obviously, right? And, and they're, they're pretty serious about building perfection into their body, but even those guys that I know that are bodybuilders can look at themselves and know they have flaws physically. How much more so spiritually do we know ourselves? We, we know where our minds went this morning or last night or in the last week or the, the actions that we participated in. If we're a follower of Jesus Christ, we know those actions and we see this and we, we think, for sure I don't feel spiritually perfect. Can I remind you? Can I, can I encourage you this morning? Do not trust your feelings because your feelings will betray you every time. You are who God says you are. God says you are complete, you are perfect. So how do I know for sure that I'm perfect? Because I don't feel it. How do I know? Well, the short answer is you're a child of promise. According to God's word, you're a child of promise. So let's look, first of all, who is the one that makes us complete? I I want you to stay with me in Colossians for just a minute. In verse 9, we're told, this one who makes us complete, he is the head over all. In him, all the fullness of deity dwells, ever God of ever God. In him... We have been made complete in that one. He made us perfect. So I want to finish out Colossians with you, chapter 2, and show you two more verses. And it says this in verse 11. And in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. We talked about that a lot last week. The spiritual circumcision, the work of Jesus Christ. A circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Pay really close attention. It doesn't say through faith in the working of Mark. It doesn't say through faith in the working of Tony. It doesn't say through faith in the working of Amanda. It says through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And the outcome is that you were raised with him. We're told according to that passage. So as a result, hear this. We are a new creation. You are a new creation in Jesus Christ. The old things have been passed away. Do you need to be reminded of that this morning? Look with me on the screen at this passage. According to if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. That's who God says you are. God says you are perfect 
in him, Colossians. Look at it one more time. Last time I'm going to show it to you. Colossians 2.10, in him, you have been stuffed. God can't put any more perfection in you because of what Jesus Christ did for you. Now, there's a tension with that reality. I, I know if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you're thinking, I know this stuff. I hear it. I can read it in black and white. I, I can see it right there. I know I'm delivered from sin, yet man, I still wage war with sin. So we don't always feel like we're perfect. The battle's been won, right, church? The victory has been accomplished. And until Jesus Christ comes and returns and establishes his kingdom and rule on earth, we're going to still war with these temptations day in and day out. But God says the victory has been accomplished. So to remind us and encourage us, God says, remember who you are, new hope. Do you remember that you're an heir to the promise that I made? Look with me on the screen. Galatians 3, 29. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. Now, there's the last Greek word, the second one that's in your notes this morning, this word, apangalia. It, it means to make a pledge. When it comes to God, it means to God to say, I promise you, and I'm the God who cannot lie, I promise you, that what I commit to you will happen. God taking an oath. If you belong to Christ, you are Abraham's descendants, you are heirs according to the promise. What types of promises does God make? That's what we want to understand this morning. In Romans chapter 4, as we go into verse 13, you're going to see the word promise mentioned again and again and again. So we really want to understand this. Go with me to verse 13 of Romans chapter 4. For the promise, there it is, there's that word, apangalia, for the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. And now we're cooking with gasoline. This is hot stuff. God's made a commitment to us. He said, there's a promise. There's a promise that I've made. The promise is for a future. Do you notice that it has its roots in faith? It's, it, it's through the righteousness of faith. Any idea that God's promises depend upon your works or depend upon the law is seriously flawed because what the law does is it magnifies sin. We'll come back to that thought in just a minute. As verse 13 relates to Abraham, the historical Abraham, I want to get literal with you for a moment because there's three really significant commitments that God made to the historical Abraham, the person who lived flesh and blood. Here's the first promise that God made to Abraham in Genesis 15. His first commitment was that there would be land. Abraham, you're going to inherit a piece of land, a property that I will give to you. And that little sliver of land that we see Israel occupying in the Middle East today, that's nothing in comparison to what God promised them. It was a massive piece of property that God committed to the children of Israel. If you've never read it before, you should see the geographical boundaries that God said, this will be your inheritance, but they never claimed it. They never acted it upon it. They never seized it all. And they settled for a very, very small piece. But God says, I'm going to give you an inheritance through land. And the second promise God made to him was that you will have a people, Abraham, and your seed will be as the seashore has sand on it as the dust is in the air, as there's stars in the sky, so will your people be. But the third promise is the one that really relates to us this morning. The third commitment from God to Abraham involved you and me in 2017. 
He said, I'm going to give you a promise, Abraham, that through you there will be a blessing to the entire planet Earth, a blessing upon the entire world, Genesis chapter 12. And that promise that God made was fulfilled in a descendant of Abraham through which the whole world would be blessed, an individual by the name of Jesus Christ. At its core, the promise that God made to Abraham was a preaching of the gospel in the Old Testament. Did you know that? That God made a commitment, a proclamation, that there would be one coming, that there would be a Messiah one day? Look with me on the screen at Galatians chapter 3. It says this, The Scriptures, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. That's you. If you're not Jewish, you're Gentile. These are the only two races upon the planet. Either Jewish or Gentile, according to the Bible that the Gentiles would be justified by faith. That preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, all the nations will be blessed in you. So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the what church? The believer. Abraham's called a believer, just like you are if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. You're heirs of Abraham, descendants of his. He's called the believer here. Why? Because he took God at his word. He believed that what God said he would do, God would do. So Abraham's trust was not in what he did, not in his works, but in the promise that God made that there would be a future Messiah, that there would become a deliverer one day. That's why you find Jesus in John chapter 8 saying, Abraham, when he heard that I was coming, he celebrated. John 8, 56, look with me on the screen at that passage. Jesus said it this way, Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Now, when you go to verse 14, you feel like that's kind of a hard shift. Like, are we still talking about the same thing? But go with me to verse 14. He's still talking about the promise. It says this in verse 14, For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void, and the promise is nullified. For the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, there also is no violation. I want you to hang on verse 15 for just a minute. He just said that the law brings about wrath. Is it not ironic that the very thing that the ancient Jews counted on to make them acceptable to God actually turned out to be the thing that would underscore sin? The very thing that they thought would make them acceptable and righteous before God actually underscored the very sinful actions they were carrying out. Because by trying to fulfill the law and failing, their efforts merely turned them into conscious sinners, right? It just kind of put a magnifying glass on them. Let me give you an example. Let's just suppose you're driving a, a really, really nice sports car, and you're cruising down a country road, and, and, and it's smooth, and it's flat, and there's no potholes, so you're obviously not driving in Michigan, right? Okay? And you are moving because you don't see any speed limit signs, and you're cruising at such a degree that you're starting to feel like, man, maybe my car could lift right off the road. And you look down at your speedometer and you see you're pushing 75 miles an hour on this little country road that's super smooth. And then you come upon it. There it is. In black and white on the side of the road, speed limit, 35 miles an hour. Right? Okay, what's just happened? The law has been posted. Before you knew the speed limit, you're cruising along, you're moving, no problem. No violation of the law. But as soon as you see the line, you have a choice. Do I let off the gas pedal or do I keep going and hit the accelerator more? See, the law has been established, 35 miles an hour. And with the law established, you have a responsibility, a burden. Do I obey the law or not? And that's what Paul is saying here. It's ironic 
The very thing that they thought would make them acceptable is actually underscoring sin. The law is posted, and therefore they've got to live up to that law. That's why Galatians chapter 3 says, man, you're going to live under the law? Look with me on the screen. Galatians chapter 3.10, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Everything, underline, underline, underline. Continue, underline, underline, underline. You gotta do it over and over and over again. I've often thought about those ancient people going to the temple and making sacrifices. Can you imagine, you've saved up your money, you buy that sacrificial lamb, you go to the temple and you ask the priest to make a sacrifice on your behalf for your family so your sins will all be dealt with. And, and, and then you leave the temple and you walk out and within an hour you've broken one of God's commandments and you go, oh man, I gotta do that all over again because cursed is the one who has to continue to do everything written in the book of the law because the law did two things, right? We're, we're told specifically God gave the law, the purpose of it was to reveal God's perfect standard and to show that we cannot in our own strength live up to God's perfect standard. So Paul's argument in verse 14 is this, if people were able to keep the law, if is a big word there, if people were able to keep the law, faith has been made void. In the Greek language, it actually says it's been emptied out. Faith has been made empty. So if the only way to receive God's promise is through this system of works, faith is canceled. It, he says the promise is nullified. Now hear this and I'll explain it just for a moment. To predicate a promise on an impossible condition is to nullify the promise. Want to hear that one more time? To predicate a promise on an impossible condition is to nullify the promise. So let's just imagine that you're all Detroit Lions fans, okay? Just work with me on this, all right? Maybe you were a few weeks ago when they were winning, right? Okay, but let's, let's just imagine everybody in the auditorium, everybody that goes to New Hope is a Detroit Lions football fan. And I have it within my ability to send every one of you from all three services to go to the Super Bowl in two weeks. Let's just imagine that I can send you all to stay in a five-star hotel. You'll all fly first class. And I promise you will go to the Super Bowl and you'll eat the finest meals and hang out with whoever you want to. I promise to do that if the Detroit Lions play in the Super Bowl. <laughs> to predicate a promise on an impossible condition all right, you tracking? Is to nullify the promise. That's not your God. God doesn't make promises and then put an impossible condition upon it that nullifies the promise. God doesn't do that. Our God makes a promise to you as a gift. It's called grace. The very concept of a promise from God points to a gift. God promises to forgive you of your sins. God promises to give you eternal life, not on the impossible condition of works. That negates the very idea of a promise. That would come as repayment. And God's a debtor to no one. That's what his word says. I don't owe anybody any debts. The culmination of this passage you're looking at is in verse 16. I really want to take you there. It's just monumental. Let's go to verse 16. For this reason, now your translation might say therefore. I like therefore better actually. 
Therefore, it's Paul's conclusion, therefore, based on all of this. Well, look at the way it says it in the NASB. For this reason, it is by faith, in order that it may be in accordance with grace, so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. For this reason, new hope. You hear Paul 2,000 years ago, new hope. Are you paying attention? For this reason, for the work of grace of God, the promise will be guaranteed. God's commitment, we saw last week, is that he does something. There's an action here. We talked about a banking transaction last week in which God makes a transfer of accounts. He transfers from one account to another, from the righteousness of Jesus over to your account, which is covered with sin. And he says, I remove your sin from you as far as the east is from the west, and in place of it, I put the righteousness of Jesus. That's the righteous transfer we talked about last week. Here, what we see is it's God's grace that provides for that to happen. In other words, catch this, if it were not for God's grace, if it were not for the grace of God, even your faith could not save you. In the 1970s, I was but a mere child, but there was a phrase that was used commonly and it registered with me. I heard it a lot. Are you picking up what I'm putting down? Right? Are you picking up what I'm putting down? That's what Paul is saying here. Are you listening to this? In other words, were it not for God's grace, even your faith could not save you. If your faith was monumental, it wouldn't matter if it were not for the grace of God. Dr. John MacArthur captured this thought really well in two sentences. I want you to see his quote on the screen. He said it this way, Abraham's faith was not in itself righteousness, but was reckoned to him as righteousness on the basis of the one who would himself graciously provide for believers, the righteousness they could never attain by themselves. So grace, then, is the power that brings justification. Why? In in order that the promise is guaranteed? The promise of what, Mark? What promise are you talking about? Just think back with me. It would benefit if you were here three weeks ago, but I'll I'll tell you what it is. And If you want to, just let your eyes drift up to verse 8 in the page of your Bible. In in verse 8, Paul's quoting David, and King David said, Blessed is the one whose sins the Lord will not take into account. Remember talking about that three weeks ago? How blessed are we that God has separated from us our sins as far as the east is from the west and will remember them no more if you are a believer in Jesus Christ. That's the promise. That's the promise he's talking about. He's clearly talking about this blessing from God that we get forgiveness of our sin and we get eternal life. And as a result of it, we are the heirs to the promise. We are the children of God and all the blessings that come with that. So verse 17 wraps it up for us. I want you to see what he's doing here. He begins quoting the Old Testament again. Verse 17 is in parentheses. It's the way it starts out. It says this, as it is written, meaning I'm going to make a quote here. As it is written, a father of many nations have I made you in the presence of him whom he believed, even God, who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which cannot exist. 
You might remember over the weeks that we've seen Paul in the book of Romans constantly doing the same thing. He's always reaching back into the Old Testament, right? He's writing the New Testament. Romans didn't exist when Paul's writing it. So the New Testament didn't exist. It's put together in pieces. So the writers of the New Testament reach back into the Old Testament. And Paul's saying, you don't believe me? You think what I'm saying is not valid? Let me take you back to the ancient days, to the Old Testament to the writings as it is written. What's he quoting here? He's quoting the book of Genesis. Genesis 17, where God says, I have made you something. According to a father of many nations, have I made you. You catching the flow here? Watch the track of what's going on in this last verse. He says, who is it that declares these promises? The one who gives life to the dead. Who is it that makes this promise? The one who calls into being that which does not exist. He's saying this is the power of God in creation. The one who can take nothing and make it into something. He says, I did that with Abraham. I have made you a father of many nations. In the Greek language, there's a sense of permanence in the phrase, I made you. This is the creator God who can take something from nothing and make it. And Paul proceeds to characterize that God He is the one new hope who calls into existence solely by his word. Let there be light, and there was light. Let there be a greater light and a lesser light to rule the day. Let there be a firmament coming up from the waters, God speaking, calling into existence. He is the one who calls into existence solely by his word. That one makes the promises to you. And he is the one who says, I guarantee it. I promise it to you. When people, this has been my experience, when people really get this down, when they understand the concept of the reality of justification by faith alone, there is unavoidably linked with it a shaking to our very core. It goes very, very deep. We recognize in one moment that we are justified by this God who gave everything for us. And at the same time, we recognize we bring nothing to the table. We absolutely have nothing to give him because we can't even work for it. God says it's by faith. And because we recognize we bring nothing to the table that no one has anything to offer, as a result of that recognition, God says, now I can work with that. When you realize that it's all dependent upon me, a new creation I call forth. I can do a work in you. A new creation is necessary when you realize you bring nothing and God needs to call life from death. He does it all. And because of God's call upon you, we're brought to newness of life. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Behold, the old has passed away. New things have come, as we saw earlier. Same God who calls into creation, who can call into existence something from nothing, calls you to life in Jesus Christ. To all who believe, this promise is unfailingly sure. Regardless of what you did this morning before you came to church, regardless of what you might have done last night, yesterday, or the week before, God says, you believe in me. Cast yourself upon me. 
and I will take your sins and separate them as far as the east is from the west if you believe in Jesus Christ. Because the blood, get this, hope you're ready to say amen. The blood of Jesus Christ is sufficient to cleanse you. It's true. It's true. God says, I promise it. I guarantee it. That's why Acts 13.39 can say this, through him, who, church? Everyone. Through him, everyone who believes is freed from all things. Let me, let me give you one final image. It's, it, maybe I've lost you on this. Maybe you think, man, this is like theologically heady stuff, Mark. I, I need something practical. I'm going to give you practical right now to close this out. Th- this, I think, will stick with you a long time. I want you to go with me mentally to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. In Roman tradition, when they crucified a prisoner, they never would just crucify one person. It would be a waste of manpower. So they would gather up the criminals who had a death sentence upon them, and they they would take whomever was guilty and carry out a crucifixion because they got all the soldiers on the job. They got overhead to pay. They're just going to carry it out. So Jesus is on Golgotha, the, the mountain of crucifixion. And Rome decides to throw in a couple more guys. So Jesus is flanked on his right and on his left by two men who are convicted criminals. Thievery is one of the things mentioned in the Bible that they're guilty of carrying out. Capital punishments in Rome were meted out based on the law that was written, but it had great flexibility. So we find these two guys who we're told are thieves hanging on the cross next to Jesus. They're doing what most of the people in the crowd are doing. They're hurling insults at Jesus, abusing him in every form that they can possibly do. He's already debased, completely stripped, dignity removed, hanging on the cross, and people decide to take that moment and begin saying things that are incredibly cruel to him. Besides everything else that he's endured, the guys who are convicted criminals begin turning on him. (laughs) You said you could save people? Save yourself and save us also. Get us done off this cross. And we're told they begin throwing profanities at him. Matthew and Luke record that in the midst of it, the guy on his right, a felon who's hanging on the cross just like Jesus, here's the other felon doing even more abuse, and he stops and he says to him, Do you not fear God? This man deserves nothing. We're convicted criminals. We're getting our just desserts. And then the most amazing thing, he turns to Jesus, the same one he's just been cursing, and he says, when you come into your kingdom, Jesus, will you remember me? Without even a moment's hesitation, God the Son says to him, I tell you the truth, this day you will be with me in paradise. How amazing is the grace of our God. There's no system of works there. There's no God saying, you better get down off the cross and do the following ten things. Based on your confession of who I am and you believe, even though you're on your deathbed, you will be with me in paradise. But Jesus, i got a lifetime of mistakes. I'm a convicted criminal. I've done everything wrong I could possibly do. I'm hanging on a cross. Now, this day, you will be with me in paradise. Why? 
Because he believed. He believed the promises of God. What secures us to the guarantee? This is what secures you to the guarantee of God. The promise from a God, get ready with your amen. The promise from a God who cannot lie. That's your God. That's your God. He cannot lie. Your life is secure in Him. It's as impossible for God to lie as it is for the one who runs to Jesus to perish. You can't perish if you run to Jesus. For God so loved the world, John 3.16, that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish but will have everlasting life. God's own words. In that truth, New Hope, we have an anchor for our soul. God's guarantee. So now Colossians 2 makes a whole lot more sense when God says you are perfect. Colossians 2, 9 and 10, for in Him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in Him, say it with me, church, you have been made complete even when you don't feel like it. God says you're perfect. And I can't stuff any more perfection into you because the blood of Jesus is sufficient to take it away as far as the east is from the west and bring you to paradise. That'll make you walk a little taller, won't it? I'm going to pray for you that you remember it as you take on the world this week. Would you join me in prayer? Father, for those who name the name of Jesus Christ, who are believers, God, I ask that you would remind them of who they are. Regardless of what happens this afternoon or tomorrow or the next day or next week, Father, don't let us forget that we walk in the power of the Son of the living God. And we don't say that lightly, Father. Help us, we plead. Help us to not forget who we are in you. For our friends who might be part of the service or watching online, Father, who are not there yet and don't have that relationship with you, God, I ask that the power of the Holy Spirit would surround them right now. That they would sense your presence and the need to deal with this issue in their life. God, I ask that you would encourage them that we all, can be received by you. To everyone who believes, Father, I ask that you would do the work that only you can do by drawing people to yourself. For those of us who leave the auditorium now, God, we ask that you would send us out in the power and the blessing of the knowledge that we are the redeemed of the Lord. It's in the matchless name of Jesus we ask for these things and all God's people said, amen. Have a great week, New Hope.